Well, beloved, I'm going to ask you to open up your Bibles to 1 John chapter 4. And we're going to be looking at this morning the source of love. The source of love. Would you please join me in prayer? Our Lord, our God, we have just celebrated some marvelous truths. Lord, for us to behold you seated on your throne. Lord, the fact that we who were enemies, rebels against you, but now made sons and daughters of God who love you and who love to glorify you and praise you both in song and and in reality in our lives. Lord, you who are the God of love, teach us about love through your word this morning that we may be people of love, people who love each other, And through the power of your spirit, even love those who are our enemies. For your glory and honor and for their good. It's the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Beloved, we've been looking at, um, through John's epistle, several times, the topic of love. And John, uh, at least in two specific uh, paragraphs in his letter, has, has really drawn out the fact that love, particularly love for the brethren, is a true sign of salvation. Now, in, in, in um, signaling out or, or um, I would say segregating out would be a better way to put it, the love of the brethren, he's not saying you don't have to love your neighbor. He's not saying you don't have to love your enemy. Both those things are very, very true. We could go to portions of Scripture and, and show you those. Uh, God commands us to love our neighbor. It's very basic. Love our neighbor as much as we love ourselves. And in fact, Jesus commands his disciples to love our enemies and pray for them who persecute us. But the focal of the love that, that we're looking at now is the love of the brethren. You see, Christians can waver at times in their, in their love for neighbor. It's not right. We can especially waver in our love for our enemies. That doesn't make it right. It's still sin. But what John is saying, the love of the brethren is a constant. It doesn't mean you love each other perfectly. He's not saying that. But if you look at your life as the pattern of your life, if that is there, he said, then you can have assurance that you've truly been born of God. And if it's not there, that assurance is not yours to be had. And throughout this, we've been emphasizing the fact that these, these characteristics of our lives don't make us um, born again. They don't make us children of God, but they characterize the true child of God. So in the passage we're going to look at today, beginning of verse 7 of chapter 4, John's going to push the topic of love for your brother just a little bit farther. He's going to revisit it, and he's going to, he's going to explain more why it is that the test of love for our brethren, that is love for others who profess the name of Christ. Why is it that that can be such a true litmus test for our lives? So we're going we're gonna to see that this morning. But, but I do want us to understand that John is, if you were to sit down and read the whole epistle of John in one sitting, which is not that hard to do, um, you will see that the, the, the love of, of uh, should say, the test of love, which is an ethical test, is not the only test. We can't, like, we can't take this test of love and, like, forget all the others, like some would want, want us to do. 
But it is a true chest. And, and we'll see that more as we get into the passage this morning. So let, let's read, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, let's read 1 John 4. I'm going to read verses 7 to 12. We're only going to look at, at verses 7 and 8 this morning, but I want you to get the context of the passage. John says there, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. By this, the love of God was manifested in us, that God sent His only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through Him. And this is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us, and His love is perfected in us. Beloved, in this passage, we're we're going to see uh, the source of love. I would say really six characteristics of the source of love, or six truths about the source of love, uh, to help us understand why it is the, the test of love is a true litmus test for being a child of God. And as I mentioned, we're just going to be looking at verses 7 and 8 this morning because there's just uh, such rich truths here that we need to understand about love. And it's so love is so misconstrued in our culture today. It's very important for us to understand this. So looking at the source of love, the first, the first truth that John would have us to understand is that God is the author of love. He is the author of love. Of love. Believers love because love comes from God. And we see this in verse 7. He says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. So John begins this section uh, with the fifth use of the word beloved. He'll use it one more time in this epistle. And it is very appropriate that he does so in a context talking about loving one another. They know, though it's not recorded for us to know, they know of John's sacrificial love. He is not merely just giving them some some nice platitude in his letter. John could not have written this if he had not made sacrifices for them to teach them and care for them and shepherd them. We, We know not what those are not given to us in Scripture, but we know that, they, that John did make sacrifices for them to, to provide them practical demonstrations of love. Or else he couldn't have written this. He, he would have had to say, beloved of God. Kind of defer that and say, well, God loves you. You're beloved of God, which is true. And I've mentioned that before, that John can rightly call these readers of this letter beloved because God does love them. But don't overlook the fact that John also loves them. And the love that we're talking about is not just mere words. In fact, John says that. You know, we're we're to love in truth, not merely in words. So surely John, you know, has loved them in very practical ways and sacrificial ways for their good that, that we just don't, aren't recorded in Scripture. So when you see John in heaven, you ask him. Ask him to fill in the details for you. I think he will. But understand that he is, he's exhorting these readers as God's beloved. 
And he exhorts them to love each other. Notice how John does it. He says, beloved, let us love one another. He just doesn't, he just doesn't come out with some direct command. He's saying, let us love one another. So that, that first person plural pronoun, us, is including John. Let us. And by extension, all believers, all who call on the name of the Lord, let us love one another. The, the exhortation to love that, that John provides is a gentle reminder that the love of the brethren is expected and commanded by God. Now, the, the type of love that, that John continues to describe and call his readers to practice towards one another is agape love. Agape love is not a natural love. It's not the love that a person might have for another person. You know, those people in life, they're, they're rare and few between. You're just like kindred spirit. We just like all the same things. And so you just get along just really well your entire lives. Not everybody has one of those, by the way, so don't feel bad if you don't have one. Good friends are really difficult to come by. They're really rare in life, the ones who stick with you over the long term. But, but the point of it, that's not this type of love. You could call that, you would describe that as more like a Philadelphia type love, a brotherly love. The type of love that, that John is calling us to is, no, is not a feeling-based love. It's not like feel warm platitudes towards one another. It's a love of action. It's a love that's defined by what you do for somebody else. It's defined by a sacrificial love. Agape love is sacrificial, selfless, in, in doing things for the good of the person loved without any thought of what you might get in return. D. Edmund Hebert describes agape love this way. It is a high, unselfish love which freely seeks the true welfare of the one loved. Unquote. That, that's such a, a great, succinct way to define agape love. A high, unselfish love which freely seeks the true welfare of the one loved. Now some people, some commentators in particular, have struggled with the fact that John is here commanding something he, he then turns and uses as a test for a believer. He's like on one hand, he's commanding. He's saying, let us love one another. At the same time, he's saying, you know, they, they say, well, John... If John is commanding, then, then how can he use that, on the other hand, as a test? So if, if a genuine believer loves other believers, why does John need to command something? You get the, the, the dilemma here. The, they would say, if, if, if true believers love one another, why do we need to be commanded in that? Well, beloved, the, the, uh, the tension between the truth that true believers will one another, will, sorry, will love one another, and the command to love one another is a genuine tension. Jesus commanded his disciples that, that they would love one another even as he had loved them. And yet he knew that love is one of those key characteristics of a true believer. If they did love, it, it would demonstrate that they are truly his disciples. He, he says that. He said that, that love for each other even shows the world that you're disciples of Jesus. So the tension between these shouldn't catch us by surprise. So, for example, we are commanded in 1 John 3.23, even if we look in this, in this book, in this letter, we are commanded to believe the name of His Son, Jesus Christ. Commanded. And yet, we also know that it is true of every 
child of God, they will believe. They're commanded, and yet they will. Both those things are true. Uh, We are also commanded in that same passage to love one another. So John does it again, by the way, so you can't just overlook this passage. Uh, In 1 John 4, 7, he does it elsewhere. But you could look at this as the fact that in other things of life, like believers are commanded to pray, and yet true believers will pray. If, if you say, if you show me someone who doesn't pray, I'll say, I don't think they're a believer. How can somebody be a believer and not pray at all? But yet we're commanded to pray. Um, we're commanded to abide in Christ. And yet true believers will, will abide. There's no person who is a believer that won't abide. And yet they're commanded, we're commanded to abide. So again, lo- allow the tension between the command and the true characteristic to, to be there. It, it's there. It's, it's there so that we will not only do it, but excel in it. And that's what John is doing when, in this gentle exhortation. Let us love one another. Is it true that true believers... Genuine believers, true children of God, will love each other? Yes, it is. But John wants that stimulated. He wants to foster it. He wants to give it biblical and divine mandate. And so that's what he's doing here. We are to love one another. Now, John builds on this. And he tells his readers why they must love one another. He just doesn't stop with, let us love one another, period. He says, let us love one another. Why? For love is from God. Love is from God. So again, understand that John's speaking about a very particular type of love. And literally, what what the the way that the Greek reads, it's saying the love is from the God. It's bad English, so we don't translate it that way. But I emphasize it to show you that, that the definite article is being used in the Greek to point to a very specific type of love. Not just, John's just not relying on the idea of agape love. He's, he's taking agape love to its source, God. The love is from the God. When, God, well, sorry, when John explains that love is from God... John is telling us that the the source of this love is God himself. The type of love that John is speaking about, agape love, has its source in the character and power of the Almighty God. And, And moved by the Holy Spirit, John clearly explains that Christians have an obligation to love one another because love comes from God. Indeed, love springs from God. You think about what it is that John's teaching us. He's teaching us the characteristics of those who truly have a relationship with God, who truly know God, who are related to Him by divine rebirth. So he's saying that that if if someone does not love, we'll get to a minute, uh, to that in in verse 8, but if someone does not love, it's it's uncharacteristic that 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 person would be a genuine believer. He he is saying that the person who loves, who loves with the kind of love that only comes from God, identifies the person as being from God. So this love, as one commentator noted, has its origin in God and belongs to the divine sphere. See, agape love belongs exclusively to the divine sphere. And the only reason that we can exercise that kind of love 
is because of his grace and of it coming from him. So John says, we are to love one another for love is from God. And he adds to that by saying this, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. So since the source of agape love, this self-sacrificing love, is God himself, anyone who loves with that kind of love can easily be identified as being a child of God. It shows God's characteristics. It shows his spiritual DNA, so to speak. And again, John is, is building upon the analogy of like father, like son. If you, are the, if you are God's child, that is, you have been born of God, then you are going to demonstrate the characteristics of God. Not perfectly, beloved. Remember, that's what we're talking about. We're not talking about perfectly. We're talking about the pattern of your life. All throughout this passage and this epistle, the, the tenses of the verbs emphasize the ongoing pattern, not, not the one-time incidences, but the ongoing pattern of your life. And the term that John uses here, born of God, refers to the spiritual birth that Jesus talked about to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. In in John 3.3, Jesus proclaims to Nicodemus what is true for each one of us. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So to go to heaven, to enter the kingdom of God, requires spiritual rebirth. It requires being born of God. Thus, those whose lives are characterized by an ongoing, present tense pattern of sacrificial love demonstrate that they have been born by God. And and the tense that John is using to talk about this, being born of God, indicates a one-time birth, spiritual birth, spiritual rebirth, with an ongoing implication of that. And John tells us in verse 7 that not only the one who loves God has been born of God, but also the one who loves knows God. Notice he says that. Everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Knows God. This knowledge of God is gained through his word, and it's also gained through life experiences that that God takes his children through. We know him, we pray to him, and he answers us through his word and through providentially through providing the things that we need. This is an ongoing, present tense knowledge. This isn't just theology in a dry realm. This is belief that is established in a close relationship. So keep in mind, this is an ongoing, present tense knowledge, but it's not an exhaustive knowledge. John isn't saying we know everything there is to know about God. After all, God is infinite, we are finite beings. There is no way, even in, even in heaven, that we will know everything about God because we'll always be finite beings. But the good part about that is is that we'll always be learning something new about God that will be wonderful in the cause of worship uh, of Him. But it is true knowledge. It's not exhaustive knowledge, but it's true knowledge. You truly know God. And John may have written these twin truths about being born of God and knowing God with, with um, the assault from the false teachers in mind. The false teachers claimed to know God, though they lived in disobedience to God, and though they did not love the brethren, not, not in a sacrificial way. They would claim to love the brethren, but not like God loved. So, beloved, do you really want to know 
Who are the ones who have been born again? The, the ones that truly know God? You look for the one who is loving the brethren. Now understand what God is saying. If, if God is the source of love, then anyone truly related to God will love the brethren. The love which, which uh, comes from God springs forth into the lives of His children so that their lives are like an artesian well of love. An artesian well is, is like a spring. It's not really a spring, but it's, it's gushing forth water because of the water that's in a different location, but it's higher than the location where the artisan well is. And that's, that's a good picture of, of, of what God does in our lives. Right? When He brings us to know Christ, He taps us into the vine, and the artisan well begins to flow. Right? If the artisan well, is, if the love, the flow of love for the brethren isn't there there's no abiding in the vine. That, that's what John is, is saying. So understand that the love which, God, which um, John is talking about can only be identified by what? By emotions, feelings, thoughts. How can, how can we identify that? How do we know when we see sacrificial love? Well, I'm going to give it away. You see it. It's a love that is demonstrated in actions. Love that remains hidden is not the type of love we're talking about. D. Edmund Hebert again explains that the presence of such love is known only from the gracious actions it prompts. It expresses itself most readily in the mutual relations between believers. And as we'll see later on, it, the supreme example is of Christ himself. But it is a love of action. How do we know that God loves us? Well, we know because the scriptures tell us, but Far more than just telling us, they tell us, the scriptures tell us how God loves us. How God loves us. Beloved, understand what John is saying in verse 7 is that true believers love because there is a connection of love to God. And that is, He is the source of love. Love is from God. But I, but I want us to look at the second reason John provides or, or tells us the second truth why believers love each other. And that is, love is, uh, sorry, God is love in verse 8. So true believers love because God is love. And we see this in verse 8. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Now, in a typical John fashion, he, John gives us a positive statement in verse 7, and he follows that with, it's kind of its opposite. We call it a negative statement in verse 8. This contrasting teaching style helps to reinforce the truth that God is teaching through the apostle's pen. John tells us in verse 8 that the one who does not love does not know God. It's very clear. It's very to the point. The one who does not love does not know God. And, and the way that he's writing it, he's saying it's not that they, they used to know God, but they've fallen away from God and no longer remember Him. He's saying that he never knew Him. Anyone who truly knows God will always know God. Right? There are plenty of people who claim to know God, but do not. And those are the ones that John is, is telling you. You can identify the, the people who claim to know God, but don't really know Him, by their lack of love. The one who does not love does not know God. So if, if agape love for the body of Christ, for those who claim to believe and follow Jesus, is not part of the character and fabric of your life, 
then, then you have no legitimate claim to be a Christian, at least not from this test, not from this perspective. Love for one another, as I've mentioned before, does not make you a Christian. It is simply a, a true uh, characteristic that will, be, that will be part of a believer's life. Right? Remember that our love does not make us a Christian. We cannot earn our way into God's family. It, it, coming into God's family is something that, that, that God does. We must be born again, and that's an action that only God can accomplish. So how can one be born again if you're sitting here this morning and you don't know whether or not you're born again? So in, in summary fashion, we'll just say that you need to re- genuinely repent of your sins and believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and trust the Scriptures that you will be saved and be persistent in this seeking salvation from the Lord. Be persistent in your belief and trust in the Lord and keep calling upon Him until you are sure that He has answered you. Be persistent in that. The the, the devil would have you to procrastinate about those kind of things. I'll do it later. Don't do that. Because none of you are promised later. Do it today if that's not true of you. Beloved, if agape love for, for the brethren is not evident in your life, then, then don't claim to be saved or to know God. You might, because right? you might be in a period of, short period of, of disobedience. But don't claim it. You have no right to claim being saved if the love of the brethren is not part of your life. Because it is a true ethical litmus test of salvation. And, and John now is going to take us to some deep waters. John is now going to build the rationale for the legitimacy of his ethical test of love by telling us something about, very profound about God. In verse 7, he's saying that God is the source of love. In verse 8, John very simply, but yet profoundly, tells us this, that God is love. God is love. And understand, beloved, when, when John wrote this, he wrote it in a very specific fashion. It, it's, it's called an inconvertible statement. Okay? An inconvertible, a convertible statement means it could be said either way. Either way. A convertible statement would be something like this. Um, Medina is Ohio, Ohio is Medina. So, so what, it, what it means, the people of Medina typify the people of Ohio. But when, when John writes that God is love, he's written in a very specific way so that it can't be converted the other way around. It, we can't say, either grammatically or theologically, love is God. Right? Notice that that's pretty much the way the world is heading, is saying that. We must understand that God is love. But love is not God. This means that we're not to think of God in, in, in some abstract way or as an abstract idea or even as, as the action of love itself. God is a living, personal, and active God. He's not an abstract idea or concept. What does it mean when John says God is love? Well, it means that that sacrificial love, agape love, the love which is a high, unselfish love, 
which freely seeks the true welfare of the one loved, is not just from God, but it is part of God's essential essence. It's part of His essential character. In other words, God is love itself. That is, God defines love. One commentator explained it this way, John is not just identifying a quality by which God possesses. He is making a statement about the essence of God's being, unquote. He is not just identifying a quality which God possesses. He is making a statement about the essence of God's being. This is extremely important because when you think about being born again, when someone is born again, they are given, they are made partakers of the divine nature. So if God is love and the divine nature comes to dwell within you by faith in Jesus Christ, then you have the very essence of God, in in essence, the the love of God within you. And and that is the source from which our love for one another flows. This this is is such an important truth that we realize that, that God's essence is love. Now, it's not only love, beloved. In John's writings, John has identified some other aspects of the essence of God. In in the Gospel of John, chapter 4, verse 24, John taught us this, that God is spirit. God is spirit, and that explains his metaphysical nature. That means he is real and earnest, and yet he doesn't have flesh and bones like us. He exists, he's powerful, he's the creator, and yet... He doesn't have flesh and bones like us. So he's, he is spirit. His essence is spirit. In 1 John 1.5, we were told this early on, if you remember that, God is light. What you said symbolizes holiness, righteousness, purity. It's, 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 it's at his very, in the very fabric of his being. Again, it's not just a character he possesses. It's part of his essence. It's part of who he really is. And so as we think about the truth that God is love, we need to keep that balance with the other truths that we know about God. For example, that he is spirit and that he is light. So these these statements about God, that God is spirit, God is light, God is love, should be balanced with one another so that one does not dominate the other. To emphasize the fact that God is love while neglecting that God is light is wrong. And we build our lives really on a, in a, um, a false uh, theology when we do that. The person who builds their life on distortions of God's character is building the house of their life upon the sand that will not withstand the storms of life or particularly the storm of God's judgment. It will completely wash away. We can boldly and joyously declare that God is love, at the same time declaring He is light and He is spirit. I I want us to, to really just kind of probe this a little bit in the remainder of the time that we have this morning. Probing the idea that, that God is love without any compromise of the truth that God is light. John Calvin is noted to have said that the human heart is an idol factory. This statement is made in light of the biblical teaching 
regarding the fallenness of humanity and human depravity. Humans create idols they worship. We're, we're used to seeing this like in the ancient cultures. If you've ever visited ancient ruins, uh, all over the world you'll see these statues that people carved with their hands either out of stone or wood and then bow down and worship them. And that's done even today in portions of the world. If you've ever visited those, that's still visibly done. But understand that we're very creative beings. And that as we've grown more modern, we want to think of ourselves as much more advanced than the primitive cultures that still build idols out of wood and stone. But you see, our idols are just carved out of the heart, which is why John Calvin said what he said. We don't, we don't build the idols. Most of us don't build idols out of stone and wood and then bow down and worship them. But we create idols of the heart by the things that we think about, the things that we worship with our money, with our time. The, the, the fact that the heart is such an idol factory, even in believers, we have to guard this because of the fallenness of our hearts, is, is evident in these last words. Which we're going we're gonna to probe this when we get there, but I'm going to mention it to you. 1 John 5.21 says this, Little children, guard yourselves from idols. The last thing that John says. Little children, guard yourselves from idols. It is just so easy for us to create idols of the heart, things that we worship, things that make us happy that are devoid of God. So what is this, this truth about idols of the heart? What does that have to do with our study today that that God is love? This is what I want to probe a little bit. When we emphasize the fact that God is love to the detriment of the equally true fact that God is spirit and the equally true fact that God is light, we recreate a God of our own liking. In other words, we've just created an idol. When we are unwilling to accept the biblical God, we've just created an idol, a distortion of the true and living God, which is really no God at all. In other words, we no longer think of God in biblical ways, but we've created a God of our own liking. This is idol worship. Beloved, our society today is really good at creating idols of God. Modern movements that emphasize the love of God to the detriment of other aspects of His essential nature are, unfortunately, alive and well within our communities. And we don't have to look very far. We don't have to go to the outer ends of the earth to find this. There are dozens, seemingly a majority of churches in our community who have effectively written off the fact that God is holy, that God is light. They refuse to discuss sin and sometimes won't even use the word sin. Yet they routinely talk about God's love, Of course, when they do talk about God's love, it's mostly a love that's benign of any real truth about biblical love. It's not that sacrificial type of love. It's not really talking about the love of Christ who died for us that we'll see later on in verse 9. God's love is manifested through our Savior, Jesus Christ. If they talk about uh, love at all, they're just going to talk about the idea of acceptance. They're not going to, and even if they mention the death of Christ, there's not going to be really too much mention of sin or, or why he died, but simply the fact that, that God is love and so he accepts everyone. 
So there, there are movements outside the visible church and inside the visible church. There are movements that are driven by people who, who won't deny God's existence, but they think he's unknowable or distant, or they think that he is kind of like the God of the shack. You know that book that came out, The Shack? You just create the God of your own imagination. Make him into whoever you want to. And, and that, that goes along with the idea that our society believes that, you can, that truth is conformable and malleable, and it's no longer something that is... Um, that's true for all ages. It's just true for you right now. It may not be true for you even tomorrow, but it's true for you right now. That's how they view the, the whole idea of truth, and it's how they view God. We see this idol-creating theology every day as we drive the streets of Medina and the communities around us. You may not even have you've seen it, but you may not have recognized what it is. We, we see it in the, in the lawn signs that read this, quote, hate has no home here. Uh, according to the website, Hate Has No Home Here, that project seeks to declare neighborhoods, residences, businesses, and places of community free of, from hate speech and behavior, providing safe places for conversation, work, learning, and living. The project's website explains that Hate Has No Home Here was established in the fall of 2016 in North Park, neighborhood of Chicago, Illinois. It is an all-volunteer, neighborhood-based movement that seeks to counter hate and intolerance, listen, through positive messaging and community-building practices, unquote. Now, all that on the surface sounds to be good. Who wouldn't want to remove hatred from our neighborhoods, our businesses, our schools, our communities? Every Christian should ultimately want that. So what's wrong with a movement to rid ourselves of hatred? Well, The first thing I want to point out is that the project does not define their terms. They don't define what hatred is. They just use it, and it morphs uh, definition based on what they define. The Bible defines hatred as a lack of love for one another. The Bible actually has a very high standard for hatred, or say a low bar for hatred. You don't actually have to be, you know, just like screaming angry at your neighbor, ready to spit on them or punch them out in order for that to qualify hatred. The Bible defines hatred simply as a lack of love. A lack of love. But our modern society defines hatred as a lack of acceptance. That's what it is. And really, it goes beyond just acceptance. It goes to embracing, celebrating everything that a person is and does. If you don't celebrate everything a person is and does, then the world tells us that we're demonstrating hatred toward them. The net result of it is, if you don't think like they think, then you've allowed hatred to be at home in your life. That's their charge. See, the idea is they'll put up these little signs all around, all around town and, and try to change this through positive messaging. Now, if you don't think like they think, if you don't accept them, and you don't celebrate. It's not just about acceptance. It's about celebrating too. So soon there'll be no room to hide because it's no longer just like, can you stay quiet? Because they're going to be looking for people to affirm them and celebrate the things that they're doing. So if you don't do that, if you remain silent, you're going to be found out. But when you are, what will happen? People will mock you, either online or in reality. They'll ridicule you. You possibly might even face physical harm amongst some of the more radical ones. 
all in the name of ridding the world of hatred. Isn't that funny? It's not really funny. Isn't it interesting that in the name of ridding the world of hatred, these people will demonstrate hatred themselves? It's like the people who call for tolerance uh, are some of the most intolerant people in the world. So that's one thing. They don't define hatred. Or not clearly. And what they really mean, if you look at what they're asking for, they're asking for acceptance and celebration. But notice that the project, hate has no home here, doesn't define love as the Bible does. So the Bible, uh, for the Bible, loving means sacrificially doing what is good for the other person. For the world, love means just accepting. It's the opposite of hatred for them. So hatred is demonstrating the fact that you don't accept them. So love was accepting them. It's accepting who they are and celebrating everything they're doing with their lives. So that's another issue. Notice also that the Hate hate Has No Home Here project tries to rid the world of hatred by, quote-unquote, positive messaging and community-building practices. That sounds like something Jesus would adopt, doesn't it? They don't define what this means on their website, but note that their approach throws mud on the death of Jesus Christ. I mean, if hate could be overcome by positive messaging, don't you think Jesus would have had that conversation with the Sadducees and the Pharisees? I mean, after all, Jesus did pray, Father, if there's any other way, you know, take this cup from me. So we must see that, that, that movements like this, well, on a human level, the motivation's probably very good. But spiritually, it's a doctrine of demons. It's trying to say that hatred can be overcome by some other means than Jesus Christ. It can't be. Hatred is only overcome through the gospel. It's only overcome through the gospel. So ultimately, a person can only escape hatred if we flee to the cross of Christ, trusting in Him as our Savior and Lord. That's that's our escape from hatred. So, So what are we to do? We need to see that, the, that hatred of other people is sin. As Christians, we should not tolerate hatred on any level. We are called to love our neighbor. We are called to love each other. And we are called to even love our enemies, those who attack us and assail us. That's a high standard. So our, those who oppose us will want to say that we're, we're foaming hatred. We're not. We are called to love. We are called to uphold the truth that God is love. The community needs to see that in our lives. But they also need to see the equal truth in our lives that God is light, that He's holy, that He's righteous. And so bringing these these two ideas together means sacrificially doing good for others and for them without sacrificing truth, while promoting truth. This means telling them the truth about God and about their sins, about Jesus Christ and the way of salvation. You see, you can't get to the gospel, the wonderful gospel, by by just saying that God has a wonderful plan for your life. You're having a lot of fun here right now, but, but there's even a better plan that God has for you. There are times where 
in tender moments, not in condemning, because all of us have been there, all, all of us who are believers were once sinners who denied God and rejected His ways, but, but as those uh, with, a ha- with an attitude of love, we need to tell people about the fact that they are sinners before God and will incur His judgment. They need to know that God will not accept them into, into heaven as they are. They don't have to clean themselves up because if, if that were the case, none of us would be in heaven either. We wouldn't be children of God if it were dependent on our own efforts and methods. But it's about embracing Jesus Christ. It's about repenting of sins. We must understand that no sinner, no sinner will ever enter heaven. Heaven will be full of previous sinners. But heaven's not going to have one single sinner present. These truths are wonderfully encapsulated for us in 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11. I'll just read that for you. 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11. The Apostle Paul says this, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor the drunkards, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, listen to these next words. Such were some of you. Such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of our God. What a wonderful truth. But if people don't know that they're sinners, if people don't know that adulterers will not enter heaven, if people don't know that idolaters, that includes those who make God in their own image, will not enter heaven, nor the effeminate, that is, men who were biologically male at birth who act like females. We're very clear about that, so our world hears that. Those who are effeminate will not enter the kingdom of heaven. God's word. And we cannot shrink back. We must tell this truth with compassion, but we must tell it. We cannot be shamed into silence by this culture. It's part of the gospel. We must be able to relate to homosexuals and to compassionately reach out to them with the gospel. They may reject us. They may hate us. But that is their response to the truth rather than us turning them away. Also, often the picture is misconstrued. We'll accept anybody that falls into this category through these doors to hear the truth of the Word of God. We will love them, and we will reach out to them as those who do not have God. We'll reach out to them as unbelievers, calling them to repentance. But they're welcome here. We're not going to cast them out. We're not going to hate them. We're not going to disparage them. But we will call them to repentance because that is genuinely loving them. That is balancing the, the truth that God is light and God is love. Remember, beloved, that nothing unholy will ever enter the kingdom of God. He himself commands us to be holy 
And in 1 Peter 1.15, we're told this, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So just as love identifies a true believer, righteousness identifies a true believer. Imperfect. We're all imperfect in this and this life, both in our love and our righteousness. But those two characteristics must be true or we're not really children of God. If those aren't consistently in a pattern of life, or not, if we're not growing in holiness and growing in our love for the brethren, then, then we may not even be saved. Those things are not true of our lives. So when John takes us to the, to the grand truths that, that love is from God and that love is God, let us, let us affirm those truths, plumb their depths, realizing that those two truths mean that love should be the very fabric of our lives. If, if love is an essence, is a key characteristic of God's life, then as a follower of God, love better be a key characteristic of my life as well. And God wants us to grow in it, to grow. And I pray for you guys as a church. Your love is excellent, but I pray for it to grow and abound in in more knowledge and, and discernment and to grow and abound in your love for one another and to grow and abound for your love for even those around you, your your enemies. For what better witness do we have of God's love than our love for one another and even our love for our enemies? Beloved, when we look at this text next, we'll look at other reasons that, that kind of build, other truths that build into God as the source of love. But it's uh, been important for us to, to really plumb uh, some of these truths in a very practical way for us uh, this morning. So I just challenge you to really think about God biblically, that He is love, at the same time He is light. He is the source of love. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we just thank you that, that you are love. That the very fabric of who you are is made out of love. Not some emotion, not some fluff, but sacrificial actions. Lord, you died on the cross for our sins. You took on a humiliating flesh. You who are God took on flesh as a man. And, and you were mocked and made fun of. You were hit and spat upon. You were beaten and scourged. And you died the most despicable, most humiliating death that existed at that time, the death on the cross. Oh, Lord, you did that because you are love. And you did that to save us and redeem us. And for those who you have saved and redeemed, I just pray, Lord God, that you would cause our love for one another to abound more and more because of our love for you. And we know, Lord, that you have loved us first. So help us to live our lives responsively, responsively to your love and to grow in our love for one another and that you would bear much fruit. You would cause us to bear much fruit through the demonstration of this love. It's the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.